And, you know, I often say, well, unless you're channeling Tommy Douglas, I don't think he actually thought of this when he created Medicare. Medicare was created for very valid purposes of nobody should be denied hospital or doctor care. But it was not designed for any of the stuff that we're doing now. Welcome to the Ivy Academy Presents Leadership in Practice, where we discuss critical issues in business, unpack new research, and talk to industry leaders about the latest trends. The Ivy Academy and Ivy Business School are located on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapewak, and Chinonkton nations. This land continues to be home to diverse Indigenous peoples, whom we recognize as contemporary stewards of the land and vital contributors of our society. As Canadians, we're regularly confronted by reports that our health system is approaching a tipping point. Leaders across the country are facing a growing call for innovation in traditional models of care, presenting unique opportunities for cross-sector collaboration to improve the health and welfare of all Canadians. In this episode of Leadership in Practice, we're joined by Janet M. Davison, healthcare consultant and administrator of the Nova Scotia Health Authority, Sarah Hutchison, program director of the Medical Innovation Fellowship Program for World Discoveries at Western University, and Matthew Lister, health system consultant and operations strategist. Our panelists discuss opportunities to innovate in healthcare, from workforce planning and governance to digitization and the role of technology, exploring what these approaches could mean for better partnerships across Canada's health ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Brian Benjamin, Executive Director of the Ivy Academy. Let's get into it. Thank you all for joining us for today's important discussion on building resilience in the Canadian healthcare system through cross-sector collaboration. Although it may appear to be all doom and gloom, there is also a great opportunity and many successes uh, to learn from. I am going to ask each of our three panelists to take 60 seconds or less uh, to uh, tell us which best describes your organization, private sector, public sector, not-for-profit. Got to be a one of the three choices here. So I am going to start with, um, with Matthew. All right. Well, thank you. I, I feel this is such an important topic because having had the opportunity to work with uh, and see several different health systems uh, that you've mentioned, um, it's really inspiring to see what others are doing. Uh, it can be a little bit overwhelming at times, but it's quite amazing to see how other countries and other uh, jurisdictions are handling uh, the crises that they face or some of the challenges that they face in healthcare. I've also worked in many sectors of the Canadian healthcare industry uh, in clinical and service operations, strategy and system planning. And after some time, you begin to gain a sense of what's possible and what's necessary uh, especially having been responsible for that change or having seen somewhere else succeed with a particular initiative that's challenging for us. But why now? Well, I think we've experienced uh, some enormous upheaval uh, throughout the pandemic. And I think the only thing worse than the loss and the trauma and strain that it's placed on us collectively would be for that to go in vain. So we can't lose the lessons and the opportunities. Th- thank you, Matthew. And, and I, I think you're, it's so important, right, is, is we can learn from the past. And, and if there are lessons, let's 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 be sure to carry those uh, forward. I'm going to go uh, over to you, Janet, next. Um, thank you very much. I mean, I think um, particularly the last couple of years with COVID have pointed out the importance of uh, of being resilient. Uh, and I think uh, there's no doubt that um, that resiliency to some extent is uh, is helped 
by having others with you on the journey, whatever the journey might be. Uh, and so that's something that uh, that interests me. And I, I'm, I'm always uh, been quite keen on looking at ways in which we can partner uh, and collaborate with other sectors, whether it's within the public sector, whether it's public-private, whether it's among different groups. But I think um, the challenge of healthcare is so huge to think that, that one can take it on, whether it's one organization or one group on their own. I think you're just kind of living in a fairy tale world. Thank you. Um, and Sarah, over to you. Welcome. Thanks. You know, for me, I think our collective response to the mounting challenges in our healthcare delivery system is more urgent than it's ever been and necessitates a change in our approach. I think whether you're a patient, a provider, a facility, a funder, or in the private sector working in healthcare, you're feeling and hearing and seeing the pressures of a healthcare system that is extraordinarily stressed. I believe that we collectively share in the responsibility not to fragment already scarce resources, whether those are human or financial, uh, private or public. And we need to do this with a greater degree of collaboration or uh, risk progress when we need it the most. So transparency, new ways of working, new partnerships, collaborations. Uh, that's why today's conversation uh, is particularly important for me. Well, that's terrific. So we've got um, three amazing individuals who are deeply passionate about this topic. So that is the ingredient for a great, uh, a great session here. So something that I uh, found fascinating when I first uh, connected with, with Matthew on this topic was just digging in a little bit more on, on sort of the size and scope of the, the healthcare sector in, in Canada. So Matthew, uh, if, if you could take a couple of moments and just help us sort of better understand sort of the landscape in which we're, we're sort of talking about and what we have here in Canada as it relates to healthcare. So Canada's health system, its overarching legislation is federal. Uh, and the Canada Health Act uh, describes five operating principles and places the responsibility of administration onto the provinces. So provinces bear the lion's share of the expenditures uh, and some of the critical roles around labor negotiations, supply arrangements, uh, certain medical device uh, reviews and approvals, workforce standards and credentialing, and various other responsibilities that are necessary to plan, operate, and evaluate their systems to serve the public. So in one view, it's really a system of systems, and it often surprises Canadians to hear that, for example, British Columbia's health system is very different from Ontario's. Um, let's talk about privatization for a moment, because that's a that's a, a, a theme uh, that uh, I think has been around just as long as uh, as uh, Canada's health system itself. Um, the private sector already plays a foundational role in healthcare, and our system couldn't operate without it. So, medical devices, pharmaceuticals. Uh, infrastructure technologies, information systems, uh, home care and long-term care organizations are some of the better known private sector businesses in our health system. Additionally, many private individuals and corporations uh, support facility expansion, revitalization, uh, research initiatives, and clinical programs that help patients and professionals every day. Anyone who's ever traveled around the larger uh, academic facilities in Ottawa, Calgary, or Toronto, Vancouver will notice names on uh, on the buildings, and those reflect those private donations and, and, and support. And I think the issue, the discussion around privatization, generally refers to a particular set of services, medically necessary services, that are scheduled, financed, 
uh, paid for and delivered through public facilities and agreements. And so the spirit of the Canada Health Act is that no one should be denied access to the care that they need, and there should be consistent standards of care. And that's a, a very terse summary of, of it. But I, in my mind, that's the spirit of the act. I'm going to jump into my first question, and then maybe when uh, you know Matthew comes back, I think that was a great sort of overall sort of scope and summary. And, and it really is so large, so vast, so so diverse, which was, um, which was helpful sort of giving us some contextual um, uh, pieces to it. So, so Janet, I'm going to go, go to you first here, and we're going to dig in a little bit on the governance piece. So we've heard examples of how the private sector can play a helpful role, and, and especially over the last couple of years, we've heard a number of examples. So from your perspective, uh, what types of collaborations uh, are truly most beneficial for the healthcare system? Well, in my view, I think any collaboration that results in improved uh, access, improved quality, is something that should be looked at. That. Uh, I mean, my concern is that we have this arbitrary private-public divide. Uh, and, uh, you know, Kirby, when he did his review, made the comment that, you know, the meaningful involvement of the private sector in a public system he was not talking about privatizing, he was talking about uh, meaningful involvement. And I think any any involvement that we that the public and private sectors can have that that helps advance knowledge, care, treatment, access is something that should be explored. I mean, we couldn't we couldn't be without the private sector. I mean, we have individual physicians who are uh, private practitioners. Uh, we have the pharma industry that we uh, that we, we couldn't be without them. Med tech. When I was in uh, British Columbia practicing at a hospital there, I mean, one of the things that we did, we contracted out surgical procedures. They were our patients in a public hospital, but we didn't have the capacity. We had no ORs left to do that work. So we, we contracted the work out. Patients were happy. They got the surgery when they wanted. We looked after the quality and we got volumes through that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So I think, I think anything, again, I would just repeat anything that helps us uh, advance the fundamental principles, such as they are of Medicare, uh, and provides access is something that we should uh, we should be exploring. Plus the development of new knowledge. And I do think private sector uh, tends to be innovative uh, because they're competitive. And I think uh, it behooves us to, uh, to learn from others. No, oh, that's great. And I love how you sort of you know, talk about, we, we think about public and private as these sort of two dichotomies at either end, right? And, and how do we think about this in a more integrated um, fashion? Are there any examples? So thank you for sharing the one in, in British Columbia. That That's cl clearly near and dear. Are there any other examples from other parts of the world where um, people have gotten this right or, the, or they've made sort of strides towards um, learning and, and connecting with um, with the private sector? Well, aside from, we'll leave the U.S. out of this for a moment because I think everybody gets uh, the kind of the flags go up and, and mm -hmm. people get inflamed. But there is no other country in the world that has one single payer except Canada now. No other country in the world. If you look at how we rank, I mean, we, we rank one of the highest spenders in the world, but in the bottom quartile in performance. So I, I have to ask the question then, are there not then examples out there that we can learn from? It's obviously um, uh, there are opportunities. I look at some of the stuff that's done in Australia, for instance, they're, uh, they're quite innovative. New Zealand, uh, the um, European Union, uh, Denmark, Belgium, they have, a, they have a quite much more collaborative approach to 
not just private and public, but also uh, the Europeans have an expression, which I love, which is called patients and families as co-producers of value. Uh, and so they are actually partners in the in it as well. So it's not kind of the, well, you get a patient rep on a committee or you talk to patients. This is actually, they're involved in the design uh, the evaluation, the operationalization of, of it. So I think I think to not partner just doesn't make any sense in my view. Well, that's great. Thank you for for those um, for those examples and and you know sort of where Canada sits within the within a global context. So anything else to add on on that one, Matthew or or Sarah? I think just the comment now is that Canada is about to spend. We're forecast to spend about $350 billion uh, in healthcare next year. Um, that is a, a striking amount of money. And uh, I think the one point that uh, economists, politicians, and health leaders, academics have finally found to agree on is that that growth is unsustainable. And we absolutely have to look at different models uh, of collaboration. I, th- I like to think too that that maybe the task for us is that we need to find some equilibrium of what that collaboration looks like. And so that partnership needs to uh, integrate the diverse parts of the system uh, and focus them onto long-term population outcomes by involving patients and and Ennis Janices and his families too. So if we think about, uh, you know, the word partnership um, and collaboration, right? That That's the, the red thread through all of this. Um, what can we do to, to sort of set those foundations? And, and we saw some great examples uh, over the past couple of years and, and you know, individuals had to mobilize during times of crisis and, and sort of unique partnerships formed. And you know, how, how do we sort of use that as, as a way forward to, to, to just make this sort of business as, as usual? So there's a theory that hospitals were developed from small shelters that just provided care along the, the early trade and commerce route. So business and healthcare share a much longer and more intimate history than lockdowns. Um, but going back about 100 years, a lot of the innovation uh, and collaboration in healthcare was coincidental rather than deliberate. Uh, so for example, the mining industry uh, used to retain doctors to provide primary care uh, services to mine workers. Uh, but they realized, the physicians realized that they had an opportunity to research lung and skin diseases. Uh, and in turn, that helped um, advance the development, uh, socialization and use of vaccines that had a much broader public benefit. I think where things really started to get going was in the 80s and 90s, we started seeing a trend in terms of partnership by donating significant capital items. And so developing countries like the Gambia, Senegal, Lesotho would receive, uh, for example, an ambulance and an x-ray machine. Uh, The problem, of course, with those capital donations is that it costs money to run and maintain them. And so I had a former colleague show me a picture of a malaria-stricken patient who had been strapped to the roof of the Gambian ambulance because the patient was not a paying customer. And so the paying customers, the paying passengers received the pleasure of driving along in the air-conditioned vehicle while the patient was the sort of last consideration because somebody had to pay for the gas. Thankfully, times have changed. And what I think what we're seeing now is an, alive, uh, an evolution of models uh, ranging from episodic donations at one end, uh, moving through enabler, funder, investor, supplier, provider, and partner at the other. And these have many different Uh, forms of relationship, expectations, uh, and they manage their roles and risks and resources quite differently. Um, I was really interested. There was a striking kind of instance of collaboration and in partnership at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, Italy declared a ventilator shortage, uh, which obviously ventilators are critical for uh, supporting COVID patients. And Ferrari and Fiat 
announced that they could start producing them. Uh, Nissan, in turn, uh, weighed in as well and offered to start producing them. Less than a month later, with the COVID incidents continuing to rise globally, uh, engineering schools started hosting competitions to build medical-grade ventilators. Um, It became quite common for them to produce these without the benefit of of mass production and mass purchasing for about $1,000. And so that's a far cry from the forty to fifty thousand dollars that ventilators typically cost a hospital. Uh, Apple right now is investing heavily in healthcare, uh, so this is furthering a trend of putting diagnostic tools right at the consumer or the patient's hand. And so I think things like ventilators and watches—I mean, these are products—but uh, we're also noticing instances where, as Janet mentioned, we're seeing some intellectual capital or knowledge skill coming in to influence how services are provided. And the example that that I find most striking and inspirational comes from India, uh, where a physician, cardiac surgeon named Devi Shetty has employed manufacturing and supply chain principles to design uh, cardiac care facilities and services that uh, cost about 90% less than they do uh, in Western countries have the same outcomes, uh, but they're radically designed. And I don't think uh, the appetite in North America is is really receptive to that kind of procedure at the moment. Partnerships like these are uh, are all the more necessary. Um, globally, we're going to spend about 17 to $18 trillion this year. Uh, that's about four times more than the oil and gas industry's annual revenue. Uh, it's about three times more than all global military expenditures and about 10 times more than all global sports and entertainment sp- uh, spending. So partnerships have a lot to offer us. And it's something that we need to look at quite quite urgently. Great. And thank you for those examples. And and for sure, we saw a number of them, you know, sort of early stages in the, in the last couple of years. Great to hear about how does this just become a new normal and new way of thinking in terms of, of creating innovation as the right thing to do in a way that will will strengthen it for all. Um, Sarah, you bring a wealth of experience as it relates to technology. Um, you know, Matthew kind of got me thinking about technology when you referenced Apple earlier. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your perspective on technology as, a, as an enabler for a more resilient and sustainable healthcare system. What, what role can it play or is it playing? Look, I think, uh, you know, we sort of start with the integration is critical. Um, Systems and solutions that, you know, were designed primarily for clinicians, but 100% now uh, considering the patient experience to improve the care experience, I think continue to be game, game changers on kind of the healthcare delivery system. I think that each sector in our healthcare arena has increased its digital maturity and penetration. So there are kind of new technologies in hospitals, whether HIS systems and the integration of peripherals and all kinds of monitoring and new tech. We're looking at, you know, the widespread penetration of electronic medical records and primary care, um, so the advances in public health, home and community, pharmacy, agency. I'd say each sector is better than it was even three years ago. And I think this sort of kind of goes back to a little bit of how Janet and Matthew both talked about this. It is a system of systems though, right? So there's a whole lot of gaps to close between those sectors in our healthcare system by ensuring digital integration, that that healthcare journey for the patient and their families remains seamless as they transition across providers and facilities. And I think we're, you know, we've done a really good job when you uh, 
when you stick in a sector, but we're not so good as we move our patients kind of around in their healthcare journey. I think different jurisdictions in Canada have been more successful than others in delivering on this kind of uh, expectation of integration. I think uh, patients would be quite distressed to understand how that integration is actually not the bedrock of our health system. So I think the one patient, one record approach and living the dream of integration is for many of us uh, still in front of us. Perhaps one day we could actually say one patient, one record anywhere in Canada, imagine the possibilities. Um, I think, again, it takes investment, it takes discipline, it takes governments to stay the course. Uh, you know, I think that becomes a challenge again, talking to, to, you know, where Matthew was talking about the division of responsibilities and the structure in our healthcare system. You know, we need a shared mandate and we need collaboration between the public and private sectors to continue uh, to make it happen. So, you know, I think our journey to sustainability, a bit of why we're here talking, has its foundation in digital integration. I mean, it's it's necessary, uh, but not sufficient. And, you know, I think just even touching on some of those examples are, you know, thinking about our response to COVID-19. It's really highlighted the necessity to respond to this integration issue, this division of responsibilities issue in particular. When you think about all of the complexity between the federal and provincial responses, what happened locally? regionally, provincially, as the auditors in various provinces are commenting on uh, resources and alignment and uh, conflicting mandates, we've, you know, between public health and supply chain and access and distribution. So I think all of these things, again, sort of link back to that uh, initial question. I think technology is necessary, it's bedrock, but it is uh, necessary, but not sufficient. That's great. Any, anything else, uh, Janet or Matthew, that you'd, you'd add to that? I'd, I'd just say, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, with uh, her comments. I, I think the um, the issue of integration, I mean, in the late 80s, every single province conducted a royal commission or whatever they called it. Uh, and every single one of those reports, integration was the big issue that came up. Uh, every single one of them. Now, provinces did different things. You know, they went regional health authorities or they went whatever Ontario came up with. Uh, uh, but they, they looked at all kinds of things. But the focus was on the structure, not, not what is it you're trying to achieve. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, for integration uh, and collaboration to be successful, they have to be embedded into the way we do our work and the expectations and the outcomes that we're hoping to achieve. They're not right now. It's kind of, oh, well, we've got this idea. Now, who are we going to collaborate with, with it? I, I don't believe that that's the way for long-term success because healthcare, I've always said, is inherently siloized. Uh, that's my own word. <laughs> You know, there are nurses and doctors, there are hospitals, there are clinics, there's long-term care, there's regional authorities, there's LINs, there's, there's all kinds of things. We just tend to be like mercury, you know, when you drop it on a surface, you get these little round balls that, that automatically form no matter wherever you drop the mercury. We tend to, to function that way. And there has to be, um, it has to be a deliberate uh, either, I mean, wired in at some point into our DNA that collaboration is just part of the way we have to do our work. And it cannot be accepted that we would do something differently. Because when I look at, for instance, all the issues of COVID, uh, and, and, you know, they talk about the, the, finally, we got some collaboration. Well, you know, I led the SARS initiative in 2003. That came up then too. We did this huge review, three big reviews, wrote the reports and put them on a shelf. Uh, so I think uh, it's, it's somehow the accountability 
for when we say things like collaboration, integration, whatever, there has to be some accountability for ensuring that that is a long-term characteristic of the system. Otherwise, I think it's too easy to put it, it's easy to, to put it off on a shelf somewhere. Yeah, and, and thank you for referencing that. I, it, it, it feels like a long time ago, but boy, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a memory etched in my mind. I was in Toronto during those, uh, during, during that period of time and, and, you know, lessons learned, are they all carried forward and are we actually um, able to make as much progress as, as we need to? Janet, you, you use the word accountability. I'm going to open this up to, to all three panelists. So whoever's brave enough to, uh, to jump in first gets to, uh, gets to go is what are one or two things that we could do to help sort of ensure accountability happens or to create the, the foundation for this accountability so that uh, we're not doing a live stream in, in 25 years on this topic saying, geez, I wish we had learned more back in, you know, 2020, 21 2022 are there are there whether it's 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 a digital lens whether it's a governance lens whether it's a, a leadership lens how do we sort of weave this in and and get that accountability moving to um to create that that sense of collaboration i'm going to start by saying i think you know at the macro level i think the way that the system is organized and funded creates so many structural barriers that really have a profound impact on driving accountability and i think the challenges accountability often gets downloaded to the smallest node so i think you know providers feel it um but actually i think the real opportunity for us is um how do we get the feds and the provinces working together to make sure that how money is moved, how priorities are set in terms of that strategy is far more aligned. And we find ourselves in whatever is the next version of our COVID response, uh, not working at cross purposes. I mean, I think that's the indicator of success that what we've done has actually been changed as opposed to everyone's blaming everybody else. And at the end result, it's the front line that's really feeling the burden of that lack of, uh, lack of alignment, but with full accountability. Uh, I mean, I would agree. In fact, I, I think um, accountability is not something we're actually very comfortable with in this country. And I would just say, you look at the um, the events in the last couple of days with the release of the Federal Auditor General's report and all of this money that went for naught. And the response so far is, oh, well, that's then. And this is now that billions of Canadian taxpayers' dollars. So it's 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 kind of, it permeates through everything, whether, whether it's... Um, uh, in healthcare, I would use the example of the, you know, the, the provinces and territories came together an FPT meeting a few weeks ago. Uh, and I mean, having been involved in those meetings in the past, I know all of those materials are read and prepared before any meeting takes place. But, you know, the premiers decided, no, they want to discuss, they just want money with no holds barred. And that's it. Well, that message goes out. And so if that one is, we don't want to be accountable, we just want you to give us the money and then uh, uh, go away, then I, I think it's it's going to take a lot of hard work and some some very strong leadership to to drive the uh, an accountability structure that or just not a structure, a culture that is this different from the one that we have right now. And I think I mean, I'm hopeful. I talking to a lot of students, uh, graduate students going through, uh, you know, health management type programs. That's more they're they're looking at that more than certainly they did when I was in uh, when graduate school. Uh, so I think there's there's more of an awareness. But I I uh, I think as Matthew mentioned earlier, the amount of money that we're spending at some point at some point people are going to say, you know, what 
wait a minute, what is happening here? Because we will be at a point where we can't spend anymore. Uh, and then people are going to say, well, how are we going to make any decisions about what we don't spend money on uh, if we don't have some sense of who's accountable for what, when? Thank you. I, I think that there's a tendency to think that there's accountability if there's an organization that's labeled to be accountable. So there's a lot of talk right now about national dental care and pharmacare. And if you read through the recommendations, it follows a similar path. Set up an organization that's responsible for this, uh, have it structured and, and, and give it a certain mandate, and therefore we'll have accountability. But it's proven time and again that having an organization, having an overarching administration doesn't necessarily mean accountability. And anyone who's done planning in the private sector, like real honest strategic planning as opposed to just getting a list of priorities uh, and projects together, but honest to God strategic planning in the private sector no, would, would be shocked at how it's often done in the public sector, whereby there are endless consultations of different academic, community, patient. I'm not saying those things are bad, but I think there's a different way of involving and honing decisions so that ultimately uh, there can be better accountability in the system. One thing I've noticed too, is that we tend to think very much in those silos and continue to think in those silos. And one of the, th the things I found interesting in working abroad is that there have been two instances where I've had to explain home care. And this is to a group of academic and government and, and providers. And one of them sort of interpreted right away, oh, so you mean like, for example, after somebody gets discharged and what service? Oh, no, the hospital already does that. So they don't, they haven't really institutionalized. Well, that, that, that's great. Thank you. Um, thank you, Matthew. And thank you all three for being brave and, and diving in on that um, question. So how do we increase cooperation and collaboration based on highest value outcomes when healthcare is so tied to government agendas and re-election? Any, um, anyone want to weigh in or, or have a bit of a perspective? On, on that one? This is the real crux, of course, of the Canadian healthcare system, the increasing politicization. Uh, and I've over my career, I mean, I've been around longer than I want to admit, but I, it is increasing politicization, not at the strategic level. Um, um, you know, we haven't really done much at the strategic level, uh, but at the operational level. And I think uh, that makes it ex extremely difficult to, to kind of come up with sort of overarching principles about anything because the, the as was mentioned earlier, Earlier, I mean, the political cycle is quite short. Uh, and so to try and have so, any sort of long-term vision becomes almost impossible. And right now, I mean, there are, I often say there are 13 healthcare systems in this country. There aren't one, there isn't one. There's a federal one, and then there are the 10 provinces and the three territories. And all depending on where you go, it's all different, including the, the fundamental principles that Matthew identified earlier. They're applied differently in different provinces and it's it's a real challenge. So you're, you're really going to need a, a very strong, I think, political focus that's visionary and um, is committed to some principles around uh, uh, healthcare, universal healthcare, so-called, uh, that people will rally around. And um, somebody said to me one time in Europe, they said, you know, true transformation requires courage and leadership. And quite frankly, it's in very short supply. I do want to talk a little bit about workforce uh, planning, you know, and, and obviously, given the size and the scope of, of what we're talking about, the people component is 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 absolutely massive. So in order for, you know, the healthcare industry, you know, to sort of be thinking, you know, forward looking, when it comes to workforce planning, what are going to be some of the most crucial skills um, that that leaders and and individuals in in leadership roles are going to be requiring um, 
you know, I say moving forward, it could very well be starting today as as well. Do you have a time machine? Because these, I think these warning signals were were well identified. A former colleague uh, recently produced a report that suggested that Ontario alone would need about 4,000 PSWs per year for the next two decades to meet the needs of long-term care facilities, individuals living independently at home or in assisted living facilities, or to support uh, some of the increasingly hospital in the home type concept uh, work. So that's just one area. And we tend to think very much around the clinical roles that are necessary, nursing, pharmacy, family physicians, uh, primary caregivers, especially uh, who have been under enormous uh, strain right now. One thing that's fascinating is to look at the data around deployment, planning and supply. And so, for example, in, in a couple of areas, uh, these are large uh, academic places where I've worked, uh, we found that there is anywhere from a 5% to a 30% uh, opportunity and how the workforce is actually deployed. And so that's to say, have we, you know, crudely put, have we right staff, uh, right sized uh, this particular function? If the political forces around COVID look extraordinary, the internal political forces around deployment are no less uh, massive and influential. So those are some of the things that come to mind. I think separately, before I'll close at this point or just after this comment, but I think too that my own experience in doing strategic and operation planning with, with larger uh, centers has been that workforce, HR and workforce is typically the afterthought. It's typically only looked at during labor negotiations or around then. And I think that it really needs to be part of the strategic planning. Uh, so often in the private sector, I hear the concepts around talent management and talent planning. And that's a conversation I don't really hear nearly as much uh, in healthcare. And I think it's a necessary one. There are obviously IEN, IMG, uh, sorry, IEN for those who don't know, internationally educated nurses, uh, international medical graduates uh, who have a lot to offer, and uh, and then the advent of machine learning and so on, which will have some influence on on how services are provided. But I think that's still a ways off. Your point around planning and 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 longer term thinking, you know, feels more, more relevant now than ever, especially with with you know unemployment rates so low and and competition for talent. Um, so fierce. How, how do we how do we make the most of the resource pools that we have and continue to to move that forward? Um, Sarah, anything that you'd add on this um, very important workforce? Uh, Part of our conversation? Yeah, maybe a couple of things. I think one of uh, the areas of conversation that I think needs a lot more attention is uh, kind of pan-Canadian licensure of our health professionals to make our workforce redistribution far less challenging than it has, you know, to Janet's comments about how many systems we have running in competitive operation, the answer is a lot. And I don't think um, piracy is the response, meaning uh, we need to move people to the highest bidder uh, you know, we should be working as a system that responds and allocates resources to the highest need. And, you know, I, I see trends uh, emerging, which are suggesting, you know, we're going to bump up our, you know, our salary or our remuneration uh, in such a way that will disrupt another area or jurisdiction. And I think um, I understand why, but I feel like that is uh, that is going to cause a cascade of issues for us that we're never going to, you know, we're not going to recover from. So I think now licensure, uh, whether you're a physician, whatever regulated health professional to allow that, you know, make it easier to move people around in the country, I think 
we do need um, many different remedies in terms of that strategy. And as I say, this kind of interprovincial poaching, I think is, it's an uh-oh, you know, as we kind of think about that going forward. So I, I would agree that 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 we did lose a patient focus from a political lens, but I, I saw a number of organizations do things and collaborate in ways that I found absolutely amazing. Uh, I found groups in public health, uh, the private sector, hospitals, all coming together to figure out how they could uh, organize an arena to provide uh, immunizations, uh, how to share resources and do things like that, work with um, uh, work with public health to track vaccination, maintain cold chains and that sort of thing. I actually found an awful lot of collaboration on the provider side that may not have come through to the public uh, through the media at the political layer. Time flies, right? When you have a, a big media conversation and, and three exceptional panelists. During the pandemic, we lost the patient focus as different uh, policies and different medical agendas uh, began to clash. How does this affect the common vision of sustainability? And you know, very much aligned to that theme of sort of collaboration and connection. Um, I'll uh, Senator Colin Deacon has been doing a lot of work in competition in light of the Rogers outage. And I, I found it very interesting to watch and, and, and follow. Um, I can't help but think that, uh, that some aspect of competition would be very helpful for the system also. And, you know, we we speak about it, innovation. I don't think Canada has an innovation problem. I think Canada has an innovation adoption problem, integration option, uh, integration issue. And I think competition could help with that uh, enormously. There was absolute outrage at the loss of Rogers services, but I was surprised to hear people say, yeah, it's going to be four years before I can get my knee looked at. We seem to tolerate that be absolutely intolerant of eight hours of a service outage. Um, and I, I would love to see some of the language come through in the thrust for uh, for demonopolizing or oligopolizing or whatever the right word is, but basically adding competition to a system uh, so that we can begin to compare apples to apples and, and uh, what we're receiving in terms of value for financing. Thank you, Matthew. Janet, I'm going to go to you with this next one, only because you mentioned U.S. earlier, but I think you have an interesting take on this. So the U.S. has made some small uh, steps towards uh, covering medically necessary dental health care, which can help manage chronic disease outcomes. Uh, do you see oral health getting any oxygen or is this still too far out here in Canada? I don't think it's too far out. I mean, dental care is on the uh, is on the national agenda, uh, and at least they've now got some provided for uh, uh, for children. Um, I think it's just going to be a question. It's like pharmacare. You know, how much can we add on to the system without really looking at how effective we are right now? And that's, I think, going to be the challenge going forward. We uh, thank you for that. So we have structure. We have many pieces. The performance appears to be an issue. Is this just on delivery or is there a greater scope in terms of performance. Oh, Anyone I would say it's in. across the spectrum. I don't think it's just on uh, on one particular aspect of it. We tend to hone in on things like, uh, you know, well, it's got to be this, a simple solution to a very complex problem. Uh, so I don't think it's, uh, it's just one thing. I think there are a number of things that we need to look at collectively uh, to, in order to, you know, this thing that you would do in, in the old days, when you look at a system and say, you know, let's chunk up the pieces and, and say, what's the challenges here? And what are we going to do about it? I would, we don't tend to do that very much in healthcare. 
Yeah, and I think it's, you know, further complicated by the fact that there are significant resource gaps in significant sectors, right? So you want to look at quality and performance and outcomes, and yet physician practices, as an example in the community, just aren't resourced with the infrastructure to do that. So, you know, there's a little bit of a conversation of you get what you pay for, but you need to think about what needs to be true in order to get the kind of measurement and outcome data that you want and, and whose job that is. And if it really is important in primary care as an example or other sectors then you have to create resource capability for that to happen so that has to be a deliberate investment people need to understand that and we need to carve out room for that to happen and i think again to this discussion about resilience and sustainability like we're asking everybody to do everything in times of uh in times of trouble and i think that is not Uh, actually sustainable. And that is why our work in collaboration with the private sector is absolutely necessary. There are tasks and jobs and opportunities that lend themselves wholeheartedly to a division of responsibilities that allow us to work collaboratively and and fall forward in a much more productive way. Thank you for for going and and giving some, I think, pretty eye-opening comparisons to to what's tolerable and not tolerable. Why cannot Canada uh, offer a private option? That's the big question, of course. I mean, why why can't it? Because there there is this um, specter that's out there that somehow private means bad, uh, and it's just that it would destroy Medicare. And, you know, I often say, well, unless you're channeling Tommy Douglas, I don't think he actually thought of this when he created Medicare. Medicare was created for very valid purposes of nobody should be denied hospital or doctor care. But it was not designed for any of the stuff that we're doing now and to simply take the the old model and say it's okay and, and, and just apply it to the current environment and think that that's all right. I mean, I think the question he's raising is a very good question. And a lot more Canadians are starting to ask that question. So I'm going to give uh, everyone uh, 30 seconds, you know, for one final comment, uh, Sarah, Matthew, Janet, just to give you an order. Look, I, I think the private sector brings uh, considerable resources and expertise uh, to the table. I think we have to create spaces uh, to provide and support that intersection. I think there are lots of us that are in roles and in in, in settings that can create uh, that, that space to make that collaboration happen and make it easier for clinicians to to reach the private sector and private sector to reach clinicians and healthcare delivery systems. I think that's the challenge in front of us. And I look forward to our next panel discussion about how we might we might actually make that happen. Amazing. Thank you, Matthew. I think we tend to think very much of partnership in big terms, organization, organization, and that's necessary. Uh, but there are small steps too. Um, I'd hired, uh, I used to run a team of about 16 uh, project management Lean Six Sigma folks, both in Vancouver and in Toronto. And I made a point of hiring people who had no healthcare experience. Uh, And they very often saw things and saw through things and saw opportunities that those who had worked in the industry, who had been conditioned to certain data points or certain ways of doing things, they simply couldn't see what those barriers were all about and managed to solve some very pernicious and persistent problems. Thank you, Matthew. Janet. I always say to people, if somebody says that they can't do something, you have to ask them why not and continue to ask that question. Uh, An advisor of mine once said, ask why not five times, up to five times if you can't get the answer you want in the first time. And then you couch it and how, tell me how this is in the best interest of 
the patient, which of course are the citizen or whatever you, whatever the uh, the focus is. But I think why not? Why not? Why not? Because we always talk about why we can't get there from here. Thank you for tuning to in saying, to leadership We're going there now. Let's just figure out. We'd how like to thank our guests, Janet M. Davison, Sarah Hutchison, and Matthew Lister. Leadership in Practice is produced by Melissa Welsh, Joanna Shepard, and me, Sean Ackland Grant. Editing and audio mix by Carol Eugene Park. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe. You can also find more information by visiting ivyacademy.com or follow us on social media at Ivy Academy for more content, upcoming events, and programs. We hope you'll join us again soon.